Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to my listeners, and welcome back to my podcast, Keep in the Koopa Loop. This is podcast number two, and I will be discussing gender and team differences in sport and how that correlates with mental health. We learned a lot from the last the last podcast about how there are differences in mental health between D1, D2, and D3 athletes, but more specifically, how these athletes balance different aspects in their life, the differences in mental health symptoms such as sleep quality and total mood disturbance for each NCAA division level, and lastly, ways to improve mental toughness and self-compassion in individuals. Unlike Last podcast, I was able to find an abundance of research on differences in mental health between genders and the type of sport an individual plays, which again is the main idea of this podcast. Some of these differences in mental health include possible variations in mental toughness, confidence, commitment, and challenge, which I will be highlighting first. I further expand the knowledge on mental health and mental toughness by elaborating on mental toughness levels in competitive tennis players, which I'm sure you can imagine is one of my favorite research articles since I am a competitive tennis player. As you will see, I continue the trend of finding participants outside of the United States since I go from competitive tennis players in South Africa to research on gender differences in elite Australian athletes. Lastly, I was able to discover key information about competitive trait anxiety, what anxiety and depression levels look like in individual sport athletes, and mood state responses during overtraining regimens. Interestingly enough, mental toughness is a topic often discussed in sports-related research since it is such a key aspect when pointing out differences in athletes and their mental health. And on a personal note, a year ago, I took a sports psychology class, and if there's one topic that I remember learning from that course, it would be self-compassion, confidence, and as you might have guessed, mental toughness. So clearly, as I already mentioned, it is a very important topic to be discussed and researched when it comes to sports psychology. With that being said, let me dive into a very basic yet valuable article I read regarding mental toughness and the differences between gender, age, experience, and sport type. If you don't know already, or if I didn't emphasize it it, on my last podcast, mental toughness is the idea of having a high sense of self-belief and an unshakable faith in which the athlete can control their own destiny and they can remain relatively unaffected by competition and adversity. Additionally, mental toughness is related to what's called the four C's, control, commitment, challenge, and confidence. In past research, it is noted that elite athletes were more mentally tough than their non-elite counterparts, but there is a lack of research in differences in age, gender, and achievement level. Therefore, this article by Adam Nichols, Remco Pullman, Andrew Levy, and Susan Backhouse back in 2009 looked to examine other potential variables that relate to mental toughness and the four C's. Participants included 677 athletes, ranging from young, as young as 15 to as old as 58 years of age. Not all participants were elite athletes either. There were variations in experience, such as competing at an international or national level, through a club or university, and they even included athletes playing at beginner levels. Essentially, all participants completed the mental toughness questionnaire, 
which has six different subcomponents: challenge, commitment, interpersonal confidence, confidence in own abilities, emotional support, and life control. I first agree with their hypotheses that higher levels of achievement would be associated with higher levels of mental toughness, and older, more experienced athletes would present higher levels of mental toughness as well. In relation to confidence, they predicted mental toughness to be higher in males and team sport athletes since it is reported that males and team sport athletes are generally more confident than females and individual sport athletes. If I were on this research team, I would definitely agree with their predictions, but the results did the results show the same as what they anticipated? Surprise, surprise, the results were not significant for all hypotheses. First, there was a significant gender main effect. The results were significant for males, scoring higher on challenge, control emotions, control life, and confidence ability, but not on commitment or interpersonal confidence. Furthermore, it is shown that older, more experienced athletes predicted higher scores in total mental toughness, as well as the subscales of challenge, commitment, and life control. However, there were no main effects nor significant results for sport type and achievement level. This means that although more accomplished athletes, and maybe even those participating on the team sport, are thought to be more mentally tough, there is actually no difference between type of sport played and whether they are successful or not. So what can we gather from this article and how exactly does it relate to mental health and athletes? Well, as we learned from my last podcast, Stenatis' article showed us that, they, that those who are more mentally tough and self-compassionate predict better mental health. Although Nichols' article didn't mention anything about overall mental health mental well-being in relation to mental toughness levels, I am curious if he made this correlation at all, since past research indicates a relationship between mental toughness, self-compassion, and mental health. I also revealed the exact scores that Stomatis included in his article and explained that there are virtually no differences in mental toughness scores between athletes at each level, and D3 athletes scored the highest in overall mental health. As I explained in podcast one, I initially did not know how to feel, and I further went on to say that I expected mental toughness to be higher among D1 athletes, despite D1 and D3 scores being identical. Now, after reading this article, I am not surprised that there were no differences in mental toughness scores, since this current article by Nichols confirmed this finding that there are no differences in mental toughness when it comes down to type of sport you play and your level of achievement. Now that we have a basic foundation of what mental toughness is and how it relates to different variables in sports, I'm going to further elaborate on subcomponents of mental toughness, specifically with competitive tennis players. I would personally like to thank Richard Cowden for researching mental toughness in competitive tennis players back in 2016 because I literally jumped for joy when I found this article. I must say there aren't that many articles on individual sports, let alone tennis, which is why I am so excited to talk about this one. I know, I know, yet another research article about mental toughness, but this one is cool because it examines competitive tennis players from South Africa. The tennis players who participated in the study competed at a variety of levels, which were categorized as country club players, 
those who competed at local county tournaments, on a university league, and national tournaments or international tournaments. They also had to play tennis for a minimum of five years and engage in competition within two weeks prior to their participation of the study. So these participants are clearly involved, if not deeply committed to the game of tennis. Backtracking a little, I want to briefly go over what was said in Cowden's introduction because he introduces a different approach to mental toughness than what some of the past articles have considered. For example, he first proposes the idea that mental toughness is a narrow personality trait, according to past research Keep in Mind, and that it is situationally stable. He also adds in that other researchers contend that mental toughness can be looked at through a state-specific lens in which mental toughness varies from situation to situation. Or he further makes us contemplate the idea that the variability in mental toughness from person to person can be due to intra-individual and inter-individual differences. What do you think? Is mental toughness a situationally stable and narrow personality trait that people have? Or do within and between person differences play the most significant role in differences in mental health? I just thought his introduction was intriguing because instead of just talking about what mental toughness is and how it affects people, he makes his audience wonder about whether mental toughness could actually be considered a narrow personality trait or a state-specific element in individuals. All right, now back to the point of talking about Cowden's research. Not only did he assess mental toughness in competitive tennis players, but he also tested for self-reflection and self-insight. This measure explores um, one's need for an engagement in self-evaluation by having individuals write statements such as, I frequently examine my feelings, or I usually know why I feel the way I do. Self-reflection and self-insight is linked to sport performance in the way that being aware of one's emotions and recognizing different emotions and cognitions is linked to superior performance and can ultimately be applicable to the athlete's mental toughness. And given that tennis players are in individual sport athletes who have many opportunities to reflect on their performance and think about other aspects of their individual game, it only makes sense to investigate self-reflection and insight in tennis players. Therefore, given these two measures and the participants, Cowden hypothesized that mental toughness would be significantly predicted by both self-reflection and self-insight. Notably so, global mental toughness was shown to be predicted by self-insight but not self-reflection. It was actually quite significant, with self-reflection scores coming in with a sad number of 0.14 and self-insight scores resulting in a solid 0.50. It is also concluded that those who are more insightful are more likely to possess higher levels of confidence, constancy, and control since the results show that all three of these elements were predicted by self-insight. Don't get me wrong, self-reflection is still very important to consider when thinking about one's self-awareness abilities, but it seems that understanding your emotions, behaviors, and recognizing why you are feeling a certain way plays a larger role in mental toughness levels in athletes, especially tennis athletes as we have seen from this study. Lastly, I know I didn't go into depth about confidence, constancy, and control, 
but I think it's informative to conclude with the result that tennis players with greater self-awareness tendencies are also exhibiting higher levels of constancy. This means that those who are understanding their behaviors are more likely to remain determined and dedicated. As an individual sport athlete, I can definitely relate to this because the more I think about my performance and how my emotions are affecting my game, the more I want to improve and fix whatever problems I may have. More specifically, if I am able to understand my negative mentality and my low self-esteem, I would want to dedicate my time on improving and practicing my mentality as well as building up my self-confidence. I also feel that many other individual sport athletes would benefit from this knowledge because they might not realize how important understanding their emotions are in terms of how it is affecting their performance and their mental toughness. With that being said, there are so many ways that athletes can improve their mental toughness just by taking a deeper look into their cognitions and even incorporating some mindfulness techniques, which I love, um, to help their self-awareness. Moving on to a different country now, this next article written by Courtney Walton and five others just a few months ago actually in February of 2021 takes a look at specific gender differences and mental health among Australian athletes. So far, I have spent a lot of time talking about mental toughness across different population samples in the United States and South Africa, so I found this article captiva captivating because, for one, the main focus is gender differences when looking at mental health symptoms in athletes, and two, it provides a different population other than elite athletes from the United States. Overall, there have been many studies on gender differences in mental health, but there have been few findings on possible gender differences in sports and how that relates to mental health symptoms. Courtney Walton and her co-researchers hypothesized that female athletes would experience higher rates of symptomatology, such as anxiety, mood, and body image concerns, and they also predicted adverse life experiences, such as financial difficulty and discrimination, would be experienced more frequently in women than in men as well. Unlike some of my other articles, this study included participants who were at least 18 years or older, and they completed two questionnaires, one to assess mental health symptoms like somatic complaints, anxiety, social dysfunction, and so on, and the other to assess adverse life experiences, also known as ALEs, which assess standard life event questions and the perceived availability of social support. So, um, did the results show any gender differences between mental health symptoms and these Australian athletes? Well, as it turns out, there were no differences in psychological distress, nor any differences in the likelihood of seeking help from those around them. But on specific subscales of the mental health questionnaire, it seems that women scored higher than men on mental health symptoms. Going further into the results on mental health symptoms and well-being, the authors actually provided a table that showed the mean of scores for each element. For the mental health questionnaire, it is said that scoring six or more is considered to have a probable mental health disorder. Interestingly enough, the average score for somatic complaints, anxiety and insomnia, and social dysfunction were at least above 6.12 for women. Furthermore, women scored 6.12 on somatic complaints and 6.26 on anxiety and insomnia, 
while men's scores for these two items were 4.66 and 4.35. Finally, women scored lower on self-esteem and with mental well-being. Women scored 48.90, while men scored 52.34. In this case, these higher scores are associated with better mental health. But despite women scoring higher than men on most measures, men did score higher on alcohol use, which I don't really think is a surprise um, to me since it has been shown in past research that men, especially those who are college aged, have higher rates of alcohol use than women. Aside from mental health symptoms, men and women athletes scored similar in their adverse life experiences scores. Female athletes scored significantly higher than males in interpersonal conflict, financial hardship, social media abuse, and feeling undervalued. However, there were many other scores that were similar between the two groups, such as having a serious illness or injury, bereavement, being stalked by a fan, which is interesting, and being a victim of crime. So, overall, there really weren't that many significant differences between male and female athletes in their mental health symptoms in this specific study. However, women experienced more ALEs than men, which is a curious finding in my opinion, especially with financial hardship. Do you think this could be due to the pay gap, the pay gap when women start their careers? Or why do you think women, especially when the participants in the study were at least 18 years old, experienced more financial hardships to a significant level compared to men? In conclusion, the study really does not say a whole lot in differences in mental health symptoms in Australian athletes, but the scores and adverse life experiences are interesting findings that I would like to research about in the future. And I would be intrigued to see how adverse life experiences vary in athletes in the United States, especially in discrimination, social media abuse, and financial hardship. For the remainder of this podcast, I will be drawing attention to anxiety levels in athletes, specifically with competitive trait anxiety, and how that corresponds with depression levels even among individual sport athletes. For starters, there is a specific instrument that measures sport anxiety created by Smith, Small, and Schutz. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce their last names, so excuse me if I'm wrong. This scale, the sport anxiety scale, measures somatic anxiety and two specific components of cognitive anxiety, worry and concentration. However, what I'm describing is the original version. They actually made a new version called the SAS-2 which instead tests for individual differences as well as worry, somatic anxiety, and concentration disruption. More specifically, worry is associated with poor performance, somatic anxiety is associated with hyperactivation and other physiological elements, and concentration disruption is associated with difficulties in focusing. In general, it is reported from past studies that female athletes have higher competitive trait anxiety, which is a tendency to experience negative emotions in many situations, such as a competitive environment. Females also report higher levels of worries, yet less concentration disruption than males. In this current study, Marco Correa and Antonio Rosado did a great job back in 2019 in exploring trait anxiety, and they tested anxiety levels in males and females who practiced individual or team sports by using the SAS-2. 
Keep in mind that individual sports are sports such as tennis, swimming, surfing, and climbing, whereas team sports are considered basketball, handball, rugby, football, and volleyball. Nevertheless, the main goal of this study was to investigate the differences in gender and sport in terms of how they experience sport anxiety, which I thought was a great fit to be included in my research in this podcast specifically since it looks at gender and sport differences. Basically, there were significant differences between males and females in sport anxiety levels. There were also latent mean differences that showed individual sports to present higher levels of sport anxiety than those participating in team sports. As basic as these results are, it means a whole lot when considering how anxiety levels differ among individual and team sport athletes. This study corresponds with other past studies that reveal individual sport athletes to have higher competitive anxiety which can be caused by the pressure of performing alone and achieving a certain outcome, especially if if there are certain expectations for that athlete. I know for me, as a female athlete who participates on an individual sport, I experience a lot of performance anxiety. On a more personal note, my junior year of the fall semester, uh, when we were having our main tennis season, I experienced a lot of performance anxiety. That was my first year being a captain, and I moved up a spot in the singles lineup, so I was now playing one doubles and two singles. Even though there was not a single person on the team that was expecting a lot from me, I put so much pressure on myself and thought that since I was not only a captain, but also one of the best players on the team, I felt that I had to win every match and play a perfect game every single time. This resulted in me having anxiety for every singles match um, to the point where I would actually cry after my singles matches because I did not want to play tennis anymore. I was so tired of losing and not performing like I had in the past. Just from my personal experience, it's crazy how much sport anxiety affects your game, especially with individual sport athletes. I can confirm with what the author said in this article that sport anxiety can be caused by feeling pressure and having the set expectations on how you should perform because that is exactly how I felt. It was a horrible experience and it is such a a struggle to snap out of as well. Granted, it would be unfair for me to say that every female athlete who participates in an individual sport has had the same sport anxiety experience as I have, but I just wanted to share my story because it relates to the findings from this research study, and it makes my podcast a little more relatable by sharing an experience that hits home for me. Oofda, after my long tangent about my personal experience with anxiety in sports, it's probably best to move on now to further findings on anxiety in athletes. This article, written by Emily Pluhar and five others in 2019, actually corresponds with the last one, as it aims to verify any distinct differences between the mental health diagnoses of anxiety and depression in team versus individual sport athletes. This article is very different from the rest because instead of a college-aged population, the study actually examined athletes aged 18 and younger. So why include this in my research, you may ask? Well, I think it is important to gather a general sense of how team versus individual sport athletes may differ, if there are any differences in the first place, um, in their mental health. And with college-aged participants, there are a lot of other variables that can contribute to their mental health, 
such as being away from home, learning how to be independent, the pressures and exhaustion from harder courses and professors, and the list goes on. Rather, with participants who are 18 years or younger, yes, there are those daily life stressors, but I would say that they're not as extreme as what college students may experience along with adulthood. So I thought the study allowed for a good foundation in understanding anxiety and depression in team versus individual sport athletes. To get started, there were a total of 756 participants, which is a great participant pool, and they were asked to list their injury history, training regimen, dietary intake, and their reason for playing their sport. Fun reasons included as simple of a response as just to have fun, or to make friends, or to be part of a team, while goal-oriented reasons included obtaining a school scholarship, to be strong, to be popular, or to win a championship. Given this information, what exactly did the results say, though, about group differences? Well, looking at the graph the authors provided in their article, 13% of individual sport athletes indicated that they had experienced depression or anxiety, while only 7% of the team sport athletes indicated they experienced these mental health diagnoses. It was also shown that 70, um, yes, 70% of individual sport athletes said they play their sport due to fun reasons, while 79% of team sport athletes reported playing for the same reason. So to conclude, I think these results are interesting to think about in the way that mental health prevalence rates in these athletes was lower than the national average at the time, and that playing an individual sport was actually not a risk factor for anxiety and depression. However, the results technically show that there was a higher percentage of individual sport athletes that played due to goal-oriented reasons, 30% compared to 21% of team sport athletes. This makes sense to me because an individual has to focus on themselves and their performance while being on a team sport such as basketball or volleyball entails a more fun environment, especially at the young age when winning a state championship at age 12, let's say, isn't prevalent quite yet. I briefly just wanted to compare the results from this article to the ones from last article since they are completely different. This article states there are really no differences in mental health illnesses, such as anxiety, between team sport and individual sport athletes, while the last article mentions um, those who participate in an individual sport and athletes who are female have higher competitive trait anxiety. Don't you find this fascinating, especially with the different ages of participants between the two studies? I might not have mentioned it beforehand, but there were 601 athletes participating in Correa's and Rosado's study, and the ages ranged from 12 to 47 years of age. This is such a diverse sample compared to Pluhar's research design. So let me ask you this, do you think that age has a lot to do with it, such as the possibility of older aged athletes experiencing more competitive trait anxiety? Do you think being a college athlete has a lot to do with it as well, such as other variables that come with entering adulthood, influencing the experience of performance anxiety? Or do you think competitive trait anxiety cannot be experienced or is generally hard to understand for adolescents and children? 
I wish I could have the answers to these questions, but I definitely think being older and having more experience, more experience in your sport has a lot to do with the anxiety and athlete encounters, in addition to the demands that come from being an adult and the pressures of being in college. And that, my friends, is the most basic conclusion I can provide as to why I think the results from these last two articles are so different regarding anxiety differences between gender and sports. To finish this podcast on a strong note, I want to end with another one of my favorite articles I discovered while doing my research, which is David Tobar's article from 2012 on trade anxiety and mood state responses to overtraining in college swimmers. This article has a lot of useful information about how athletes are affected by overtraining, which is something that is often understood but not extensively talked about, so that's why this article is valuable. To start us off, overtraining is defined as a process involving progressively increased training to a high absolute level that is in excess of more routine training undertaken to maintain performance. So basically just very increased training levels at a very high absolute level. Sounds like a pretty straightforward concept, although I feel as if you can find overtraining occur much more at D1 universities than D3 schools, but I could be wrong. Despite how simple overtraining is defined, it is is actually quite complex because every athlete is different in terms of how much training they can handle and what the optimal amount of training will be for each sport. In fact, while overtraining is occurring, in quote, an athlete may show signs and symptoms of an inability to cope with the increased physical activity, end quote. Obviously, this makes sense because although our bodies are stronger than we think, we can only handle so much training and strenuous exercise before we eventually fall apart and shut down. Not only does training affect physical aspects of an athlete, but it also affects them mentally, such as their mood states. Keep in mind that mood states are defined as transient, fluctuating affective states, which depict an individual's reaction to their current life situations. More specifically, mood disturbance, a type of mood state, is simply a negative reaction to the individual's current life situation. So how do mood states correspond with overtraining, you may ask? Well, it is found from past research that overtraining is associated with increased mood disturbance, perceived stress, perceived exertion, and muscle soreness. It has also been reported that, in quote, psychological variables were the best early markers of disturbed functioning during overtraining compared with biochemical or physiological markers, end quote. A specific psychological marker known as staleness is a response that results from overtraining. Staleness, overtraining syndrome, or OTS, uh, whatever you want to, whatever you prefer, um, they all are the same meanings. And staleness is defined as a severe negative response to overtraining, which is accompanied by performance decrements and dysregulation of various psychological and physiological states, and restoration of performance capacity may take several weeks or months. Goodness gracious, this is starting to sound way too intense for me. First, an overload on training and now a syndrome that corresponds to overtraining that causes a dysregulation in psychological and physiological states. I cannot even imagine. 
Anyways, before I dive into the actual study and what it's about, there is one last key piece of information to discuss before moving on, and that would be trait anxiety. I already talked about competitive trait anxiety beforehand and how that anxiety varies from situation to situation. In this study, Tobar considers trait anxiety to be the degree to which individuals differ in anxiety proneness and how individuals who, who perceive situations as stressful, dangerous, and or threatening will have intensified state anxiety reactions. It's important to note that high trait anxious athletes are reported to be more vulnerable to acute physical activity stressors, but that finding does not generalize to other potential stressors. Now that I've covered the basic definitions of what is included in the study, let's take a look at what Tobar was aiming to discover. As the title of the article says, he was looking to study the relationship of trait anxiety and gender on mood state responses to overtraining in men and women college swimmers. The study was, do the study was done excuse me, over a 10-year period at a large D1 school in the Midwest, and it included 70 male and 46 female college swimmers. As for his predictions, Tobar projected that high-trait anxious athletes would report less mood disturbance compared to low-trait anxious athletes, since according to past data, high-trait anxious athletes are more vulnerable to acute stressors. In order to test his hypothesis, Tobar used the Profile of Mood States questionnaire, as well as the State Trait Anxiety Inventory to assess the mood responses and state trait anxiety each athlete experienced. Overall, results were significant when testing for gender differences in trait anxiety, with the mean scores on trait anxiety being higher for women than for men with this participation pool. When testing for the main analyses, there were significant results with trait anxiety, gender, time, trait anxiety times time, and time times gender significantly affected the combined dependent variables of tension, depression, anger, vigor, fatigue, and confusion. In relation to the results from the main analyses, Tobar provided readers with three different figures that show how low-trait anxious individuals and high-trait anxious athletes differ in their mood states at baseline, peak training, and taper. I wish I could somehow incorporate these visuals into this podcast, but I will do my best to explain clearly what is going on before, during, and after the overtraining regimen. At baseline, there were indeed differences between the two groups. Overall, the high-trait anxious group reports higher scores in all of the mood states, which are tension, depression, anger, vigor, fatigue, confusion, and there is a last column for total mood. However, there were only significant differences between the two groups for tension, depression, anger, and total mood. Nevertheless, the low-trait anxious group did score higher in vigor. It's actually pretty entertaining to take a look at these graphs because while the high-trait anxious group remains a constant line throughout the mood states, the low-trait anxious group starts off horizontally, just in a basic um, line, then shoots up when it hits vigor, and then goes back down to a straight horizontal line for the rest of the mood states, thus maintaining a constant level for all mood states except for vigor. Now, Moving on to peak training time, the low trait anxious group significantly increased from baseline to peak training in the mood states tension, depression, anger, and total mood. 
Meanwhile, the significant changes from baseline to peak training in the high trait anxious group were for anger and total mood. Figure two of this article is really intriguing to look at now because compared to baseline where the two groups drastically differed in their mood state responses, the two groups were virtually similar while performing during their overtraining regimen. And lastly, figure three provides us with details on mood states for the two groups during taper time. It is described that from peak training to taper, depression, anger, and total mood improved for both groups, yay. And the scores at taper were not that different from baseline with the exception of anger in the low trait anxious group and depression in the high trait anxious group. Again, we can see from this last figure that vigor is still higher in the low trait anxious group than the high trait anxious group, meaning that the figure is in a similar pattern to what we saw at baseline. Okay, I am sorry that was an abundance of information, but I do have one last thing to mention, so hang tight. I'll be brief this time, but I just wanted to say that the increase in fatigue from baseline to peak training was greater for women than in men, yet fatigue was lower for both women and men at taper compared to baseline, which is a good thing in my eyes. And finally, women reported higher scores and tension at baseline and at taper time, but from baseline to peak training time, men were the ones to be found with more um, tension than women. Now, with all of that being said, what are some key points that we can take away from this article? First, in terms of state trait, um, excuse me, <laughs> in terms of trait anxiety being associated with overtraining, we can conclude that high trait anxious athletes are more likely to experience greater distress under neutral conditions than are low trait anxious athletes. However, when situations are not neutral, but instead intense during a period of overtraining, it seems that low trait anxious athletes are the ones to encounter more mood disturbances and more negative shifts in mood. In turn, this mood disturbance results in a greater chance of developing staleness while undergoing an overtraining schedule. Secondly, when we are comparing gender differences with mood um, with responses in overtraining, it seems that there were no variations in how women, men and women react. According to the results, we can see that men and women college swimmers are likely to have similar experiences when exposed to peak training, with the exception being that women had increases in tension from peak training to the taper condition. Meanwhile, men had, men had similar levels um, of tension throughout the different points across our season. Hopefully, information didn't get too confusing, especially when I was describing the figures, but my goal for you is to get a clear basis as to what we see in men and women and their mood states and anxiety as a response to overtraining. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finally made it to the end of the podcast, but you know what that means. Just another quick overview as to what was all talked about, because this podcast was a little bit longer than the first one. Um, I'll try to make this short, sweet, and to the point. As you now know, there is a lot of research on mental toughness in athletes, and we can understand that mental toughness levels are different depending on your achievement level, gender, age, experience, and sport type. Yet, we actually learn that there are no differences in mental toughness in achievement level or sport type, so whether you are a very accomplished athlete or not, you are likely to have similar mental toughness levels compared to athletes who might not be as successful. 
but keep in mind that if you are an older, more experienced adult, note the difference between experienced and accomplished, you are likely to have higher levels of mental toughness. I further explain mental toughness in individual sport athletes, specifically competitive tennis players, and we learn that self-insight plays a bigger, more significant role in, in determining mental toughness levels compared to self-reflection. In addition, these tennis athletes appear to have higher levels of confidence, constancy, and control when they are more insightful of themselves rather than those who are largely self-reflective. Moving on to something other than mental toughness, I feature Walton's research, which discusses psychological distress among elite Australian athletes. Although this study failed to discover any significant findings of psychological distress in help-seeking behaviors among these athletes, we do learn that women experienced more adverse life experiences, such as financial hardship and interpersonal conflict. While mental toughness is very important to consider when learning about the psychology of an athlete, we cannot forget about competitive trait anxiety that athletes experience as well. It can be concluded from Correa and Rosado's study then that athletes from individual sports reported significantly higher levels of general sport anxiety, and females also reported higher levels for somatic anxiety and concentration disruption. However, when considering a different age group and whether anxiety levels are the same, it appears they are not. Emily Pluhar, on the other hand, suggests that playing an individual sport alone is not a risk factor for anxiety and depression, and there were no significant differences in type of sport between age groups. Notably, um, Pluhar's participants had a mean age of 13 and a half years, which I think plays a major role in the differences in results between the two studies on anxiety in athletes. Lastly, when taking into account how overtraining affects college athletes, we are able to recognize that low-trait anxious swimmers reported greater increases in mood disturbance during overtraining than did high-trait anxious swimmers. After all, mood disturbance is correlated with overtraining, so coaches and trainers should be cautious if they are considering implementing an overtraining regimen. Alright, I hope that wasn't too much of an overload of information, but with all that being said, I am officially done with podcast number two. I am confident that my lovely listeners gained some knowledge and at least one idea from this podcast, um, so therefore I'm now going to transition to my third and final podcast discussing mental health and athletes versus non-athletes. <laughs>